0: So last week, uh, we had uh, a reading of Luke about the Good Samaritan. So keep that in mind as we listen to the scripture today. If you'll pray with me for the prayer of illumination. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that unity will one day be restored. Open our hearts and minds to the reading of your word. And let them form our lives, Lord, so that all will know us as your disciples of our great love. Amen. So this reading is from Acts 10, 24 through 48. They arrived in Caesarea the following day, anticipating their arrival. Cornelius had gathered his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in order to honor him. But Peter lifted him up and said, get up. Like you, I'm just a human. As they continued to talk, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you all realize that it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with outsiders. However, God has shown me that I should never call a person impure or unclean. For this reason, when you sent for me, I came without objection. I want to know then why you sent for me. Cornelius answered, four days ago at this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon, I was praying at home, and suddenly a man in radiant clothing stood before me, and he said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and your compassionate acts are like a memorial offering to him. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and summon Simon, who is also known as Pre- Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, located near the seacoast. I sent for you right away, and you were kind enough to come. Now here we are, gathered in the presence of God, to listen to everything the Lord has directed you to say. Peter said, I am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism John preached. You know about Jesus of Nazareth, whom God anointed with the Holy Spirit and endowed with power. Jesus, Jesus traveled around doing good and healing everyone oppressed by the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and allowed him to be seen, not by everyone, but by us. We are witnesses whom God has chosen beforehand, who ate and drank with him after God raised him from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of his sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on him, I'm sorry, fell on everyone who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. They heard them speaking in other languages and praising God. Peter asked, these people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Surely no one can stop them from being baptized with water, can they? He directed that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they invited Peter to stay for several days. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Acts of faith in a diverse world. So far this uh, month we've talked about what it means to do acts of unity, what it meant to do acts of compassion, And of course, when we get to the rather large subject of Acts of Justice, Peter ran away to a horse show for the day. Associate Pastor Day, it's good. (laughs) But I think this, this is a really appropriate topic for this day, this Sunday before Thanksgiving. If we were following the lectionary, it would be Christ the King Sunday. But also appropriate because I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a long week in a long month, near the end of what feels like a very long year for our world. It is not a time when justice seems close at hand. Last week, we talked about uh, acts of compassion And I think that is a familiar place for most of us. We know what it is to look into the eyes of another person to see their need or their pain and to wanna meet that. There is a sense of joy, a sense of closeness. There is what I call with youth the warm fuzzies, right? When we engage in those acts of compassion. But when we get to justice, That seems a bigger, more foreign thing. Justice seems like that giant statue of the lady with the scales and the sword, certainly something much larger than any one of us. There are a lot of ways that I could choose to to talk about justice today. Um, I could talk about our prison system, I could talk about refugees and immigrants. I could talk about veterans care. I could talk about welfare. But I'm not gonna talk about any of those things. And if at any point in the next few minutes you think I'm talking about one of those things, well then that's your cue to go home and have a conversation with Jesus about that. Because I think before we can embark on any of the myriad of places that justice is absent in our world, we have to have a basic and shared definition of what we mean when we say justice. I have talked often in, in sermons or in Bible studies about how we, we are coming to that time where the values of the church are not always the values of the world, and justice is one of that places one of those places where it is immediately apparent. What we mean when we say justice is not the same as what the rest of the world means. To get at it, I'd like to tell you a story. You've probably heard this one. It goes, um, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now on his way, he saw ahead of him a priest and a Levite. But he sort of kept his distance a little bit. He he knew pretty well what a priest was and, and what a Levite was, but he was a Samaritan. And he was really sure that they weren't gonna wanna talk to him. So he took his time along the road. He kept back at a distance. He took a leisurely pace. But as he rode along that Jerusalem, Jericho Road, he heard off to one side the groans of pain. So he stopped his donkey, and he got down, and he found there a Jewish man who had been waylaid by bandits. He was badly beaten, and without help, he would surely die. And so the Samaritan cleared some space on his donkey, he put the man across the animal's back, and he continued on his way down the road. When he came to an inn, he he took care of the man for the night, and he left silver with the innkeeper to see that the man would be cared for. And he said, on my way back, I'll stop and I'll check in, and whatever's not covered, I'll pay you for that then. And he went on about his way. He had done a great act of compassion, now, the man knew the Jerusalem Jericho Road pretty well. He was a businessman. He traveled back and forth often. And, and lo and behold, a, a couple of weeks later, he was traveling down the Jerusalem Jericho Road, and he came across a man who had been waylaid by bandits and badly beaten. So he picked him up, and he put him on his donkey, and he took him to the inn. As he was walking, he started to think about it, and, he realized that um, he seemed to see people who had been waylaid by bandits an awful lot on that road. In fact, most of the times he traveled back and forth, it, it seems like he came upon somebody in some condition of pain because they'd met bandits on the Jerusalem Jericho Road. And the Samaritan started to ask himself, why? Why am I always called upon to help someone on this particular road? See, that's the leap from compassion to justice. Justice is the place where our mercy, our love, our heart starts to ask, why is the thing happening? We know that immediate response. We know what we should do when we see pain, But it's a bigger question to say, why is the pain happening in the first place? And once the Samaritan started to wonder why there were always bandits on the Jerusalem Jericho Road, he had a couple of choices to seek justice. If he had been a Roman, justice probably would have looked like this. He'd have gone to the governor, he'd have said, look, there are bandits all up and down this Jerusalem, Jericho road. It is interfering with trade, it is causing a serious problem. We really ought to get uh, some soldiers down there and clean the place out. Roman soldiers are very efficient, they probably would have gone down, there would have been massive arrests, they'd have tracked down the bandits and their at their bandit hideout. It would have cleaned up the problem, right? It might have stopped the problem for a while. But did it do anything for the man who was waylaid by the side of the road? What happened to the bandits' families? Why were they bandits in the first place? The Roman Empire is a pretty prosperous place. Could they not make money another way? Isn't there a good chance that if the soldiers walked in and cleaned out the road, that within a couple of months, Somebody else would figure out, this is a pretty good road to rob on, and the problem might just come back. Oftentimes when we think about justice, we think about it in terms of this paying the price for your crime. This idea of going in, cleaning out the problem, of bringing to justice those who have done the wrong. We call this retributive justice, justice as retribution. It is the way the world talks about justice. But the problem with justice as retribution is it leaves an awful lot of holes in the fabric. See, when God talks about justice, God's justice is always about restoration. It is always about bringing healing. When we talk about God's justice on the Jerusalem Jericho Road, it isn't about making sure that no bandit ever robs anybody ever again, because they're too afraid to. It's about finding out why the bandits are there in the first place. It's about finding a way for the bandits to look the Jewish man in the eye and say, we're going to make this right. It's about seeing that those who have been harmed in any way are taken care of. It is a beautiful picture of justice, but it's also a difficult one. There is a piece in us that likes retribution a little bit. I was watching an interview this week um, where Stephen Colbert was talking about bombing out places in the Middle East, and you said, you know, it, it scratches an itch. It makes you feel a little better. It doesn't matter if it works or not. But retribution has never been our way because we know that restoration brings fuller life, not only to victims, but to perpetrators. God's justice is always about bringing retribution and wholeness. God's justice, in order to do that, also silences judgment. Here's where we start to get a little bit uncomfortable. When I tell the story about going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's really easy to identify the good guys and the bad guys, right? We know whose side we're on. We know we're supposed to be on the side of the Jewish man and the Samaritan and not the bandits. It's a comfortable place. But then we get this story in Acts about Peter and Cornelius. See, Peter lived his entire life in that world where he knew who the good guys were and the bad guys were. The good guys were the Jewish people and the bad guys were everybody else. That's what it meant to be a Gentile. It was to be outside of the family of God. It was to be other. And we just didn't interfere with how Gentiles lived their life. They were backwards and crazy and it didn't matter what they thought about us. We had a corner on God's truth. We were God's chosen people. It's a pretty black and white comfortable world. But that's not the Peter we met today, is it? See, the Peter we met today, Jesus has gotten a hold of him. He has, he has journeyed with Jesus for three years in Judea, he has preached the word after the resurrection, and as if that wasn't enough, because he still had some hangups about talking to people who weren't like him, he has had the same vision three times. If we step just back a little bit in chapter 10, we'd have heard this beautiful story of Peter taking a nap on the roof and the sheet full of animals comes down from heaven. Now, Peter, like me, must get hungry while he's taking his naps, because the sheet comes down and the angel says, get up, Peter, and eat. And because there's bacon there, that's what Peter goes for, but knows You'd go for the bacon too, man, let's just be honest. But he knows, no, 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 I am a good Jew. I've been raised Jewish all my life. No matter how good the bacon smells, I will not eat the bacon. The angel says to him, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And because Peter doesn't really get it the first time, I don't know how he holds off because bacon smells really good, it comes the second time, And a third time, do not call unclean what I have called clean. And so when the unclean Gentile shows up at Simon's house and says, Peter, come with me. Peter smells bacon. He knows that he will not call unclean someone that God has clearly called into relationship. He will not call unclean someone that God has sent to him. He will not lay judgment on a community just because they are different. But instead, he will see as his master taught him to see. And he says, you and I are human. You and I are children of God. And it is only in the absence of that justice, judgment, is in the absence of that judgment that healing and restoration begins. Now, I will confess that if silencing of judgment starts to make us uncomfortable, then the third piece of God's justice is gonna make us all squirm in our seats. See, God's justice is always about restoration and wholeness. It silences judgment. And God's justice often requires the most from those who are affected the least. God's judgment often requires the most from those who are affected the least. See, I can tell looking around the room that some of you have already gone to the place of, why are we even talking about this today? Because let's be honest, let's just be honest with each other, church. Intellectually, we know the world is not fair, the world is not safe, the world is not free. We know these things in our head But I want you to take a second, and I want you to look at the last week of your life, and I want you to be honest with yourself. How many times in the last week was life really unfair to you? I mean, really unfair. How many times in the last week did you really feel unsafe, personally threatened? How many times in the last week did somebody look at you and tell you that you are less than, or that you don't have rights, or that you are not free? I think when we're really honest with ourselves, most of us are pretty blessed. A good portion of the time, we benefit from the system. The unfairnesses of our life are small. We feel safe most of the time. And Lord knows that if you haven't gotten the idea of freedom living in this country, you're not going to get it anywhere. We know in our heads that the world is unfair and unsafe and unfree, but it's not the reality most of us live day to day. And if we're really honest with ourselves, when you don't live in that reality, there's not a lot of motivation to change the way things work. We are at the top of civilization's food change. There's there's no judgment in that. It's just the way things are. But when you sit at the top, there is not a lot of incentive to change the way things are. In fact, If I'm really honest with myself, there's some disincentive. I like the way my life works. I like the clothes I wear, I like the food I eat. And if the system changes, there's a chance my life might have to change along with it. And that's a scary proposition. But God's justice cannot be ignored simply because we are comfortable with the way things are. See, because Peter said it, you are human as I am human. We are all children of God. We know somewhere in our souls that discomfort. We we hear the words of a prophet from a Birmingham jail who said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We know in our souls, indeed, that we are tied together in a network of mutuality. We know somewhere in us that we are knit together in a single garment of destiny. We know just as well as that Samaritan knew walking down the road that any cry, any pain, any threat to any child anywhere is a threat to us and our children because they too are part of our family of God. And so we ought to know, church, that no matter how scary change is, we cannot be silent. We know that the blessings that we will celebrate on Thursday are not given to us just for our own enjoyment, but, but that they are given that we might be a blessing to others. We know the world is unsure and unsafe, but we also know that that's not the way it was created to be. We know the true ruler of this place and what his kingdom will look like when he returns. We know it will be a place where all have enough to eat. We know it will be a place that is fair. We know it will be a place that is safe. We know that it will be a place that is free. And so we know that we are called to live as though that were already the reality. And I think we know what happens when we don't. If you were here for a kip talking last Sunday, he referenced part of a letter from a Birmingham jail. And he called Martin Luther King a prophet, as I did. And I think the true test of any prophet is whether or not his words come to pass. So hear these words and tell me whether or not they are true. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believe, in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such evils as infanticide, oppression, gladiatorial contests, Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th, I would add the 21st, century. And this is the part that stabbed me. Every day, I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Those words are 50 years old. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, church, we know We know the places we have succeeded in calling for justice, and we know the dire consequences of the places we have fallen short. It has been a long week, in a long month, at the end of a very, very long year. And so there are a lot of places you could go from this place, and lift your voice for justice. But if we are truly concerned, not only about the future of the church, but the future of the world in which we live, the one thing we can no longer do is be silent. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Chapelwood United Methodist Church exists to help ourselves and others take the next step in their faith journey with Jesus Christ. Now, I promise you that right now, down there in the gathering area, is one of the sweetest ways to take a step you are going to get all year. <laughs> UMW has a bake sale going on. All the proceeds are going to go to benefit local missions. Um, it's a it's a great way to get something for you, and see that others in our community get what they need over the holiday season. Um, If you would like to spend some time in fellowship, if that's a place you need to take a next step, or if you would love to hear some of the great music of the season, then I invite you to come for cookies and carols on December, Jake's supposed to help me out here, December 20th (laughs) at 6.30. It's gonna be an evening with singing for the whole family. Um, And there will be, of course, be desserts. Um, Bring your favorite holiday dessert to share. We'll have a great time together as a family. If the Spirit has moved with you today and you would like to enter into a relationship with Christ or with this particular United Methodist Church, you're invited to come during the singing of our last hymn, which is number 92, For the Beauty of the Earth, verses 1 through 4. Correct, David? Yes. Yes. I remind you that uh, Lucinda is up here representing Stephen Ministry. If you would like someone to pray with you or to inquire about a Stephen minister, she can give you information about that. We also have a prayer chapel that is open both today and throughout the week. And now would you take the hand of someone next to you and join us in this benediction. What does the Lord require of you? Seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Go forth this day with these simple instructions to love and serve the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.